Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Today, the results are in. Elizabeth Holmes guilty of defrauding investors and wire fraud. The reporter who broke the story wide open, John Kerry, will join us this hour. Then, what should we make of the metaverse? Is it a blip on the radar or the investing opportunity of a lifetime? And speaking of which, Warren Buffett's Apple stake now topping $162 billion. A timeline of that trade is coming up next. And we're obviously watching tech stocks. Losses in the Nasdaq piling up today, uh, down more than 1.5% as the S&P, John, joins it in the red. Yeah, but first, some news. We're getting it breaking. Uh, AMD, a slate of new products, chips, more than 20 new Ryzen uh, CPUs designed for notebooks. Got some new gaming products as well. A lot of design wins here, more than 200, topping last year's design wins, meaning that these chips are going, planning uh, to be put into uh, OEM customer laptops. We're going to speak with AMD CEO Lisa Su about all of this in just a few minutes, as well as the PC outlook for consumers and for businesses in 2022, Deirdre. Uh, Consumer Electronics Show is where we were originally planning to have this conversation, but hey, we're still having it. It's Consumer Electronics Week here on Tech Check. We are. We're just not in Vegas. John, (laughs) I know you were supposed to be there on the ground, as were many, many others. Um, Likely the first of a few conferences we'll see go uh, more virtual, though this one is still happening in person. I'm I'm very excited to talk to Dr. Lisa Sue. John, you mentioned the consumer PC outlook, right? What a change over the last two years. Uh, We've seen these levels just come up from a PC for every household to a PC, a high-performing one, to for many people, many individuals. So that floor, Carl, which has increased so much over the pandemic, interested to hear her thoughts. And where we settle post-pandemic, is this something that's going to stay? Are people still going to need those refreshes? And, you know, that they are so well-positioned to accommodate, to benefit from as this company is a more than $182 billion market cap. Yeah, John, it does seem like some of the reports about the new product uh, have a um, patina of security uh, around them. And that'll be interesting to see what, what Lisa thinks um, security will mean uh, to investors and customers in the coming year. Yeah, I think a lot of the emphasis here, though, is going to be on graphics. Um, and I, I think a lot of the question that I'll have, too, is about the mix. We've talked a lot. For, for good reason, about the supply issues when it comes to the chip industry. So what areas of the PC market is AMD going to be able to supply? Are they going to be able to target? What are the implications for ASP's average selling prices and margins uh, because of all of that? We're going to get those answers in just a few. 
Yep, that interview coming up soon. Uh, let's turn first, though, to Elizabeth Holmes' deliberations in that wire fraud trial coming to a close last night. Finally, with a partially guilty verdict, our Yasmin Koram has been there since the beginning. Yasmin, you have been inside the courtroom every single day of this trial, rain or shine. What was the scene that unfolded there as the verdict was being read out last night? Deirdre, the scene was tense, but we did not see any emotion at all from Elizabeth Holmes as the verdict was handed down. She sat there stone-faced. At one point, she looked down. Uh, the jury really didn't look at her either. When the verdict was handed over and the jury left, Holmes got up, walked over to her parents, embraced them, embraced her partner, Billy Evans. Her father kissed her on her forehead, and she left the courtroom. It was a mixed verdict that she got. So the jury found her guilty of defrauding investors, but not defrauding the patient. Sentencing is up next. Holmes will be back in court next week for that. And it's entirely up to the judge to decide on it. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to be looking at things like her prior record, um, if she showed any remorse, all of that stuff. But legal experts tell me that they're really going to take into account uh, the amount lost here. And in Holmes's case, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, if you add up each count, the maximum she could face is 60 five years behind bars. That is highly unlikely. But Deirdre, you've got to wonder what Elizabeth Holmes is thinking today. She was the darling of Silicon Valley. She was a billionaire, at least on paper, rubbing shoulders with the who's who. But this morning, she is facing a very uncertain future. Yeah, quite the fall, uh, one that we have tracked so closely over the years. Uh, Yasmin, thank you so much for all the great reporting. I know you continue to track the story. And the reporter who broke the Theranos fraud story wide open many years ago. John Carreyrou, he will join us at the bottom of this hour exclusively here on Tech Check. Uh, guys, <laughs> we've been talking about the implications of this for so long. Now that we have a verdict, you know, how many other companies are out there? We know that there's still so much money for private companies. The whole SPAC movement has allowed some of the earlier stage companies with big promises to go public earlier. We have a uh, statement as well from Tim Draper, who was one of the early investors in Theranos. And maybe not what some people might be expecting. He said that the verdict makes me concerned that the spirit of entrepreneurship in America is in jeopardy. What has made America and Silicon Valley great is the ability to recognize what is possible. Now, Draper has for a long time, guys, even despite what has come out, defended Elizabeth Holmes. Um, but he's basically taking this opportunity to say that entrepreneurs, sometimes they have to make big promises and be allowed a lot of leeway to achieve them. And perhaps she wasn't given that. Certainly not the popular opinion, Carl. No, uh, John, and I, there seems to be a difference, I think, between what Draper's calling uh, innovation and progress, meaning you fight hard to make your product work and, and, and promising that your product works today, which clearly uh, we believe is what Holmes tried to argue. This one is um, this one's deep when it comes to not just private but also public companies in Silicon Valley. I mean, there's there's that old metaphor, that old saying about putting lipstick on a pig, making something look better than it is. Uh, I think in in tech in Silicon Valley, in certain circles, that's so prevalent that there there should be like a whole industry of of pig makeup uh, out there. There are stories about how, you know, very prominent and, and lauded CEOs uh, have given keynote presentations about products that didn't entirely work yet, right? But they weren't due to launch quite yet. By the time they launched, 
they were working. And boy, wasn't that great. Um, and so I think there are questions here about when is it OK to apply lipstick and when is it fraud? Now, clearly, uh, to, to a lot of people and, and based on the, the great work of journalists, uh, specifically uh, John Carreyrou, um, this was fraud, as the jury found. But I think there's mm-hmm. some soul searching to take place uh, within both public yeah. and private company CEOs about how far Carl is too far. Uh, yeah, and you know, guys, you, you do see this at some ex- to some extent. Sorry, Carl. One last thing: you do see this to some extent playing out. I mentioned SPACs; they're allowing companies to go public earlier. The investors that lost in the case of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, they're investors with a lot of money. But you take a look at Nikola, right, and the claims that Trevor Milton made, and he's going to be on trial for April, Carl. So I wonder what the implications are here. You have this case out in the public when he's about to get his turn uh, at his investor promises that reached ordinary retail investors. Yeah, uh, interesting. And we'll see what happens on the sentencing front uh, in the days to come. Meanwhile, i got to keep your eye on the markets here. S&P's taking a leg lower, uh, back uh, below 4,800. NASDAQ's down uh, about a percent and a half. Tech stocks obviously selling off this morning. Our next guest remains bullish on some cloud names this year. Datadog and Snowflake and Cloudflare among his top picks. Where should we be looking for value? Bessemer Venture Partners' Byron Dieter is with us. Byron, I, you know, obviously some of this is related to the macro, maybe some calendar issues, but have you been struck by the action the last day and a half? Well, great to be back. And uh, I would pull it out even a layer above that. I've been struck by the action the last 60 days. Uh, there's certainly been some specific outliers with some bad news, you know, C3 AI, Agora with the Chinese intervention in EdTech, et cetera. But across the basket, the cloud industry and software holistically has just been hammered. It's down almost 30% now in the last 60 days. Um, And you can look at this as a mix of fear and taxes and a a number of drivers, but it's been quite dramatic. What what makes you so um, encouraged by the action in some of these cloud names? Well, fundamentally, these businesses remain the drivers of the new economy. And we have to remember that all of those trends that people were excited about Uh, A year ago in the 2020 market, when this basket returned almost 100 percent, those remain today. The the digital transformation, the AI ML imperative, the movement to cloud, uh, especially with the Omicron resurgence, we need to remember that these stocks are the enablers of the work from home and the distributed economy. And so when you look at this market now down 30 percent throughout last year, I was on the show many times talking about the high quality of these names, but admittedly the high prices and saying that they've been forward priced by about a year. Well, we've now rolled forward in that year, and we've taken a 30% after Christmas sale discount. And so you now have these businesses trading at mid-teens multiples, which I absolutely, and for the first time in many appearances on this show, can say the basket feels like a buying opportunity today. Byron, there's a difference, though, in how a lot of these companies have been treated. I'm looking at Shopify, which is down more than 8% today, and I'm looking at Zoom, which I think is down more than 6% today. Zoom is back to levels where it was right around the time when the pandemic was just getting started. Shopify is still up for the past 12 months, I believe, but both have these interesting stories that have room to build on. But I think there's a question of exactly how they're going to uh, expand their influence, isn't there? So, so how should uh, invest, investors distinguish between the different uh, types of discounts and stories? 
Yeah, so you've got the, the premium uh, names, the data dogs and the snowflakes still trading uh, deep into the double digits for multiples. But again, a company like Snowflake has been growing at triple digit rates now for over 13 consecutive quarters. And so with their leadership team and growth rates, you certainly can see a premium there is deserved. But the names you mentioned, you look like a Zoom, you look at uh, DocuSign, you look at Twilio, as well as Adobe and Salesforce. These are companies trading at you know, seven to 15 times revenue. Uh, levels that they hadn't been at in many months. And frankly, if you look at the basket trading in the 12s now, that goes back to pre-2018 levels. That seems like premium high-quality names that are driving this digital transformation that are now at extremely reasonable prices, both by historical levels and when you overlay their growth rates. These businesses that are growing at 30, 40, 50%, many of them like Adobe generating you know, 40% free cash flow and others you know, deep into the double digits, these are premium names that are going to persist. And at these multiples, I feel like the market has, has oversold and we've gone to this fear mode um, and greed at some point here will settle back in. Right. But Byron, part of the sell-off has had to do with the macro environment that this group is facing in the upcoming year, right? They're facing a backdrop of Fed tightening. So what is it? What's the catalyst that's actually going to create another re-rating of these stocks? Yeah, there's a backdrop of chaos across the whole market, certainly. Uh, you could add the, the Build Back Better pause, the CPI print, which led to you know, this Fed pivot. There's a lot of uncertainty around Omicron, the reopening, the supply chain issues. Of all of those, um, I would argue that most of those are neutral to positive, including Omicron for the sector. And so the one that stands out is the Fed movements in reaction to the CPI and this inflation reaction that has sent people to the fear mode, which has them chasing FANG stocks and higher uh, earning and free cash flow stocks. However, um, when you look at this basket and software specifically, it's inherently deflationary. They are the drivers of this shift. Those trends are going to remain. And in fact, many that are selling into enterprise markets um, have a multi-year horizon in their buying universe that's going to roll through 2022, 2023 and beyond. And so I don't see a slowdown in those overall trends. I see a pricing situation where people felt that they may have been running hot last year, but the, this reaction seems oversold and um, way overbaked. Finally, Byron, since we have you, I just wanted to uh, get your quick take on the Elizabeth Holmes verdict and what you think the implications may or may not be for Silicon Valley at a time when there is still so much cash sloshing around the private markets and so many companies going public with big promises. Yeah, so unfortunately, I disagree with the, the comments you quoted from Tim Draper. Um, I, as a fundamental optimist and tech investor, um, every day we get up thinking hopes and dreams and meeting with teams about what's possible. But she crossed a line and um, ethics and integrity and accountability needs to be present. Um, and I do think justice was served here. I hope that this is a reminder that uh, the industry has uh, those principles at heart. And every day as we're driving to change the economy and to create the new, new thing, um, we, we do that in an honest, high integrity way. And that these discussions, especially with board members, investors, team members, need to be totally transparent because that's how we can all accomplish these lofty goals. And failure is OK. It happens a lot. But lying is not. I appreciate that very much, uh, as that's huge news, obviously, uh, for anyone who's in the business of innovating. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Byron Always Davis. a pleasure. Thank you. Now, the Nasdaq's down more than one and a half percent today, given back yesterday's gains. AMD, not immune to the sell-off. Uh, Lisa Su, the CEO of AMD, is with us on the other side of this break. Tech Check, just getting started.
Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Time for a gut check, and today it's HPE. That stock jumping today. Barclays takes it to overweight, ups the price target to 20 bucks a share. Says the company is well-positioned to manage server and storage dynamics. Also believes networking, high-performance compute will see solid growth. Shares up uh, nearly 4% today. Plus, Barclays points out that the stock has been lagging. Other deep-value hardware names like HP Inc. and Dell, they expect a catch-up. John? All right, D, and AMD announcing 25 new products this hour, including the Ryzen 6000 series update, uh, promising to deliver a faster mobile processor experiences for content creation and gaming. The sector's coming off a big year, easily outperforming the S&P thanks to huge demand during a continued global shortage. One recent analyst report released this week predicts semiconductor sales are expected to grow by nearly 10% uh, in 2022, crossing $600 billion. Joining us now for an exclusive interview on the heels of the product release or announcement is AMD CEO Lisa Su. Lisa, great to see you. Um, And I want to dive right in. You're talking a lot about mobile here. It is time to the consumer electronics show. Uh, But you've also got some some business PCs in here, specifically Lenovo, uh, the Z13, Z16, which we saw some leaks uh, to that ThinkPad design coming out. So, so how does supply look so far in 22, uh, especially the difference between the first half and, and the second half as you look to get these chips and products? Yeah, so uh, good morning, John. Happy New Year to you all, and it's great to be with you this morning. Um, It's an exciting day for us. You know, as we kick off 2022, uh, we've launched a whole slew of new products um, across, you know, notebook PCs as as well as, you know, desktops and previewing 2022 as, you know, another big year for high-performance computing. And I think you guys have said it well. You know, the the, the PC is essential to um, so much of what we do, 2021. Uh, was an amazing year for PCs. I mean, we shipped as an industry, um, you know, 350 million PCs or so, and and we believe 2022 will be another exciting year. So, you know, for this um, overall conversation about both, um, you know, consumer PCs where people want more premium and um, highly featured uh, notebooks to commercial PCs where, again, we're doing a lot of optimization 
um, in terms of the features and functions. Um, you know, we're very optimistic about 2022. And, and from a you know, demand standpoint, demand continues to be um, extremely strong. And um, from a supply standpoint, we're continuing to ramp up supply as uh, you know, we go through the year. So you know, we expect to, um, again, have another big year for PCs. Tell me, how's the refresh cycle shifted both in consumer and perhaps more important in commercial? Because I got this sense, right, we're living in this hybrid world where companies are expecting uh, employees to come back into the office, but now they're not. The employees have got to stay productive. I imagine they're going to need laptops, therefore, and, and, and laptops with a decent amount of power, right? Different, um, different amount of flexibility required. How much does graphics demand play into that? And how much is commercial demand and the refresh cycle affected? Yeah, no, that, those are great points, John. And um, I think that's true. You know, I think as we look forward into um, 2022 and as we think about, you know, what do we need to ensure that we're productive um, anywhere we want to work and um, anywhere we need access um, you know, to our computing, um, it does require um, higher performance um, PCs uh, with more capability. And so, you know, we see um, on the uh, commercial side, um, the enterprise refresh cycle looks to be robust. Uh, we continue to see people wanting, um, you know, higher performance capability, uh, whether you're doing more, um, you know, video and, um, you, know, you know, really, um, you, know, uh, you know, communications or you're doing more um, applications at home. Um, we also see on the consumer side, uh, you know, people wanting more uh, premium devices um, as well as, you know, gaming continues to be a really, really hot market segment. So, you know, overall, I think uh, the, the key is um, the, technology, um, you know, the technology expectations keep going up, uh, whether you're talking about graphics performance or, you know, today we, our Ryzen 6000 series um, are, uh, you know, 24 hours of battery life, um, as well as just, you know, significantly, um, you know, higher computing capability. And all of those are things that um, consumers um, as well as enterprise users uh, want as, uh, as we look forward. Yeah. Yeah. When you and I last talked at Code in the fall, you talked about the importance going forward of heterogeneous computing. And I can't help but see that playing out on the consumer side with what Apple is doing in the Macs and its you know, M1 uh, line of processors. Um, can, you, can you give an outlook just, I'm not talking about a financial outlook, more of a technology outlook for 2022 and uh, the kinds of efficiency and flexibility that uh, is going to be required of chips to satisfy the demand that, you know, uh, companies like Apple are satisfying now? Well, I, I think the, um, the whole um, concept of optimizing your computing for the application that you're, uh, that you're using is um, absolutely uh, the way to go. And that's, you know, sort of the trend with the tech. Um, you know, we talk about heterogeneous computing where you use the right computing for um, the right application. So um, if you're doing a heavy graphics application, you're going to see, um, you know, you're going to see the graphics kick into gear. And when you're not using it, you can actually turn it off and save uh, battery life. That's all about heterogeneous computing. You know, the, um, the optimization that we're doing with our uh, largest OEM partners, you know, partners like HP and uh, Lenovo is exactly around that, you know, together with Microsoft and, and really optimizing hardware, software and silicon together um, to get that better experience overall. 
Uh, Dr. Sue, it's Deirdre. Great to have you on the program this morning. Now, when you say PC, the association is with AMD, but when you say AI, the association still very much with NVIDIA. So I wonder, is it important to you? How important is it to change that perception, invest more on the graphics side, which you've talked about, especially as more and more CEOs and companies talk about the technology and its implications? And maybe you could talk a little bit about the deal with Meta also. Yeah, absolutely, Deirdre. So, you know, when we think about, um, you know, where technology is going over the next five years, um, it's all about high performance computing, Um, whether you're talking about computing in the data center or computing at the edge or computing with consumers. And, um, you know, of course, um, AI is a very large piece of that. Uh, we're investing heavily um, on the um, on the GPU side, as you said. Um, we actually look at it as a holistic system. So, you know, we want to be um, great partners to um, you know the largest cloud companies um, out there. So, uh, we're excited about our partnership with Meta. We're excited about our partnerships across the board um, with the largest cloud providers. You know, like Google, like Amazon, like Microsoft. And you know, the key there is we're building roadmaps now. Um, you know five years out. And, um, you know, we like to start the year talking about what you're going to see in 2022. Uh, but you can expect um, a lot more for us in, in, in 2022 across, um, you know, data center PCs, um, as well as gaming. And then going forward, um, you know, the, uh, the roadmap is full with um, lots of uh, exciting tech. Uh, Lisa, you're, you're a deep uh, at AMD, a deep tech supplier for virtual worlds, for what some people have taken to calling the metaverse, though I think I have a problem with that whole metaverse narrative out right now. So I wonder, as you look at 22 and maybe even into 23, to what degree has something fundamentally shifted versus to what degree is it just a continuing uh, momentum in the gaming space, whether it's console, whether it's PC? Um, What do you make of this whole metaverse thing? Well, John, what I would say is, um, you know, the overarching theme is that people need more computing. And whether you call it the metaverse or you call it high performance computing or, you know, you call it, you know, just more applications, um, you know, people need more computing and we're able to provide more. So I do believe it is a bit of a continuation um, as uh, as we look forward. And I think that's really exciting. I mean, what's fundamentally changed in my mind is, you know, you know, people used to think of semiconductors as, you know, sort of, hey, this is a mature industry. And, um, you know, do you even need all that computing power? And, you know, I think the um, the overarching comment or the overarching theme is people need more and more and more and more. And um, that's an exciting place to be. You know, I think um, as an industry working, um, you know, across the ecosystem, um, we love the fact that there are more applications. Um, you know, we talked about AI. We talked about machine learning. Um, these virtual worlds all require more computing and more graphics capability. And um, I think, you know, users want that and companies want that. And so that's probably uh, it is a continuation, but it's a continuation um, sort of at a much higher point than perhaps, you know, we would have thought if we were talking about this 12 or 18 months ago. Well, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> that I get. Uh, Lisa Sue, the CEO of AMD. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Meantime, if you're looking for more exposure to the chip sector, Needham says Marvell's the fastest growing large cap stock among its peers. Naming it a top pick, they bumped the target to 115. We're going to get a lot more on the conviction and the forthcoming sentencing of Elizabeth Holmes in a moment with John Carreyrou, uh, the author of Bad Blood, with us after the break. In the meantime, NASDAQ down 1.8%. Tech checks back in a minute.
Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Fort, and Julia Borston. We continue to keep our eye on the NASDAQ. The tech selling remains pretty much unabated today. Meantime, Julia's got a timeline of Buffett's activity in Apple coming up. But first, let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. A record four and a half million Americans quit their jobs in November. It's another sign of worker confidence and tightness in the labor market. Job openings fell to 10.6 million, but that is still high by historical standards. U.S. manufacturing activity slowed in December and was weaker than forecast. The ISM manufacturing index dropped to its lowest level since late January. But there are indications that supply constraints are easing. Input costs for factories posted their biggest monthly drop since early 2020. Oil prices are rising this morning. Brent crude above $80 a barrel for the first time since late November. OPEC and its allies agreeing to maintain steady production increases. The group will hike output by 400,000 barrels a day in February. And Toyota was the best-selling auto brand in the U.S. last year. It beat out General Motors for the top spot. That's a distinction that GM has held for 90 consecutive years. Carl, apparently the issue was that Toyota was better able to manage supply chain issues better than GM. So... Proof is in the pudding, I guess. I'll send it back to yeah, you. Yeah, indeed. Rahel, thanks. Rahel Solomon. Uh, we are going to turn back to the Elizabeth Holmes verdict today. Joining us this morning, one of the former Wall Street Journal reporters who cracked the case wide open, author of Bad Blood, an amazing book, if you haven't read it already, uh, John Carreyrou. John, it's good to have you back. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to break down the various verdicts in a minute, but overall, I wonder if there was a period, having covered her the way you have for so long, where you wondered whether or not any guilty verdicts might be in doubt? I definitely had my doubts, especially uh, the day that she testified about uh, her alleged uh, abuse at the hands of Sonny Balwani. Um, that testimony was, was really emotional, and you could tell the jurors were riveted by, by it. I was in the courtroom that day. And uh, at the end of the court day, I, I came away thinking maybe she isn't going to be convicted. I think the uh, the prosecution was able to to uh, turn the tables or at least make up lost ground um, by cross-examining her. And then I think the, the prosecution's uh, closing arguments were really strong as well. Right. Now, the, the asymmetry between verdicts related to investors versus patients, do you find that disappointing? I mean, it's it's disappointing in the sense that I thought the biggest outrage of this scandal was that uh, she went live with technology and experimented on patients. But that's not what the charges were. The charges were that she allegedly defrauded patients. And that was always going to be a very hard case to make, uh, that the notion that she 
deliberately uh, tried to defraud patients and, and tried to, uh, you know, illegally make money from them, I don't think was going to be a very compelling case. Um, and so I, I thought from the beginning, once the indictment came out three and a half years ago, that the investor part of the case uh, was the more compelling one, the, the one that was easier to prove. And, and that's uh, how it played out. John, good morning. It's Deirdre. I wonder, we're still waiting on sentencing. If you think that there's an argument to be made that perhaps she shouldn't go to prison. Uh, the information had a piece that argued this that said that there was so much excitement around a young female founder. It really set her up to fail. You look at other cases like Anthony Evandowski um, at Waymo, who went over to Uber. He was pardoned by Trump. Do you think that that comes through at all in the sentencing? Well, I, I really disagree with the notion that she shouldn't do any prison time. I think, you know, she's been charged on four counts of wire fraud. Uh, she, she built $144 million out of those uh, three investors. Uh, really, if you count Murdoch and other investors from that round, it's several hundred million dollars more. Um, I think that that crime deserves uh, a stiff punishment. And, and I think uh, the message also needs to be sent to Silicon Valley that, um, you can't take the exaggerating and the hyping uh, too far. You, you can't let it cross into lying or there will be consequences. And so I think it's important for there, for there to be a prison sentence so that it sinks in with uh, uh, VCs in Silicon Valley and with entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley that there are consequences to lying and that there are consequences to committing fraud. John, how important do you think it is that this was a medical product it was a health product. And how unique is this? Because there's the, I mean, we saw her in the, in the black turtleneck, the mock turtleneck, trying to evoke Steve Jobs, Apple topping $3 trillion in market cap for the first time yesterday. That's a real company with real products. But, but she was trying to spin something else. And there's an argument out there that she's being perhaps, she's having the book thrown at her more because she's a woman or because, I don't know, but what, what do you make of that argument and the uniqueness, perhaps, of Theranos among all of the entrepreneurs and uh, all of the fraud cases that you've seen or studied? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, it's an important point, which is that uh, she had a med tech company. This was a med tech startup. This wasn't a computer company. And so, yes, she was following in the footsteps of her idol, Steve Jobs, of her early mentor, Larry Ellison who famously uh, exaggerated the, the uh, features of, of uh, uh, Oracle's uh, early database products. But those guys knew that they were operating in the computer industry. Um, they were operating in the software world. And uh, the consequences in that world aren't uh, that you're putting patients' lives at risk. Uh, with a medical product, with a, a blood testing uh, diagnostic product that uh, doctors and patients, thousands of tens of thousands of them, uh, by the way, in this case, uh, that, that doctors and patients are relying on for important medical decisions, I think the stakes are a lot higher. And so I think what's unique about this case isn't so much that uh, it was a woman and that she uh, is getting the book thrown at her because she's a woman. It's that she was operating in the medical world and that anyone with common sense operating in the, in the medical world, in the healthcare sector, understands that the stakes are much higher and that you can't put people's lives at risk. Right. Finally, John, in the book, you, you document pretty well uh, the pressure you were put under as a reporter, uh, the tables full of lawyers, um, the intimidation, I would argue. And in the trial, uh, she did say that she messed that whole communication process up. 
I wonder how, how you took that. It didn't feel very genuine or authentic to me. Uh, it just felt like uh, something she'd rehearsed uh, because, uh, you know, the, the, the way she went after the whistleblowers, Tyler Schultz, Erica Chung, Adam Rosendorf, um, you know, it, it was really ugly. And and the way she went after me in the journal, that was ugly, too. The, the way that she had uh, David Boys and his law firm threaten us with litigation. And so I think she had to show uh, some regret uh, about those actions in front of the jury. Uh, but I don't think she really meant it. Um, and, and back then, I know for a fact, based on all my reporting, that she was piloting that whole uh, Scorched Earth campaign uh, to intimidate my sources and to kill my story. And so I, I don't really uh, think that she has uh, many regrets. John, we appreciate your time and, of course, your coverage uh, during this entire episode. It's good to see you. John Carreira. Thanks for having me. As we had to break, check out Amazon, Wolf Research, and RBC calling the stock a top pick for 2022. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it is. Tesla, UBS, Goldman, and Evercore all with similar calls in recent weeks. After the stock underperformed its mega cap peers last year, there's more tech check after this. Maybe the biggest winner in Apple's climb to a $3 trillion market cap? Warren Buffett, Julia Borston, takes a look at one of the most successful purchases of all time from the Oracle of Omaha. Julia. Well, John, as Apple's market cap crossed $3 trillion, Berkshire Hathaway's stake in the company hit a record $162 billion. Now, Warren Buffett isn't known as a tech investor, but this is one of the most lucrative investments in his career. Berkshire began buying the stock in 2016. He called the holding a family jewel in his letter to Berkshire shareholders last year, and it is an incredibly valuable one. Take a look at what Buffett said on CNBC back in February of 2020. We own five and a half or a little over percent of Apple. It's probably the best business I know in the world. And we own five and a half percent of it. And that is a bigger commitment that we have in anything except insurance and the railroad. So it's it's our third largest business. Now, Berkshire spent about $36 billion to buy over 1 billion Apple shares between 2016 and 2018. Berkshire trimmed its position, selling 12% of its position for about $13 billion, which Buffett admitted last year at a Berkshire shareholder meeting was probably a mistake. Now, with that sale, Berkshire lost out on $9 billion in Apple stock appreciation since then. Now, the company has had nearly $140 billion in realized and unrealized gains, despite missing out on that $9 billion. Now, Apple is Berkshire's largest holding, accounting for about 45% of its portfolio. That's as of the end of the third quarter. And Carl, I just always think about Warren Buffett's old adage, you know, don't invest in what you don't understand. And he clearly understands the appeal of those Apple devices in its services business. Uh, yep. Uh, grandkids had something to do with that. Uh, they were a long way from just Coke and Wells Fargo, Julia. Uh, pretty fascinating. Still to come this morning, our next guest calls the metaverse evolutionary, not revolutionary. That's coming up after a quick break.
Check out shares of Pinterest. Guggenheim downgrading the stock from buy to neutral this morning, slashing its price target from 46 to 39 bucks. Those cuts coming after the platform saw global users fall in back-to-back months, down 8% across the Asia-Pacific region, more than 7% in Latin America. Pinterest's daily average, average daily downloads also declining over four consecutive months, and that's according to data from Aptopia. Shares of Pinterest, they are down 50% over the last year, down almost 9% this morning, along with the rest of the social media stocks that, John, are under pressure, along with the rest of tech. Yeah, uh, the the overall NASDAQ not reflecting the hit that a lot of companies are taking. Uh, So many uh, techs down more than 5% so far this morning. Meanwhile, getting a check on another mover, we've talked a lot about the performance of direct-to-consumer brands recently. This morning, Wedbush calling the bottom for the real real, upgrading to outperform while adding the new CFO could be, quote, key to improving profitability. Stock's still down 40% in the last year, though. Don't go away. I'm on the record as saying I think metaverse is a bad theme. I I think it's lumping together some good themes with some things that are just that don't make sense yet. (laughs) Our own John Fort yesterday on the metaverse. And John, not the first time you've expressed, let's call it skepticism. (laughs) Uh, And we often debate here the buzzword that we've been hearing so often. Is it investable or not? Our next guest thinks so, kind of. He's a little skeptical, too. Bernstein analyst Mark Schmulek joins us. Uh, Mark, I appreciated the nuances in your note. I tend to like to call it sort of the new name for uh, the Internet economy. But when we talk about it being investable, what's interesting in your note, you say that the majority of the big players like Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA, they already have this head start. We talk about them often. So why don't you start by giving us perhaps some of the more under-the-radar metaverse plays that aren't constantly talking about it? Yeah, th- thanks for having me. And, I, you know, I tend to agree. I think the branding of the metaverse certainly kind of, uh, you know, peak hype, uh, and, and includes all those connotations of everything that goes with it. But, you know, in, in our view, if we expand the definition, there are good use cases underneath it. And, you know, there is an evolution underway of the next computing platform. We've done it from desktop to mobile, uh, and we're going to go do it to, to what comes next. And it may include VR, it may include AR. Uh, and we're already seeing applications like Roblox effectively play that role in the existing world. Uh, we're seeing the chip manufacturers develop to make it more immersive as we move forward. And we've certainly seen companies like Facebook go off and change their names, uh, you know, effectively acknowledging that, you know, if you're Facebook, the shift from desktop to mobile was pretty painful. You don't want to go through that again. And so you'd rather put your destiny in your own hands, acknowledging that something is coming and saying, let's invest towards it and let's be ahead of the game. And if we can unlock some new revenue streams along the way, all the better. Mark, can you talk about the perhaps sub-themes that you see that are real? I I look across things like um, advancements in 3D design, stuff that Unity uh, is doing, things that Epic is doing. I I look at computer vision, both for cars and automotive and in retail stores, to be able to identify patterns. All of that takes processing power. I mean, you could call that metaverse, but it's not really. Uh, th- that stuff is interesting to me. Is it to you? 
Well, you know, it, it certainly is, you know, but as you mentioned, a lot of that requires very significant step changes in technology and the capability to effectively go deliver it. You know, I'm sitting here with my device that now has got 5G and I can still tell you there's many parts when I'm just walking around, I get effectively no reception. Therefore, how am I supposed to be living in a virtual metaverse if I can't even, you know, get order an Uber? So there's still a lot that needs to be come with effectively real time enablement, zero lag. If we're really going to be immersed not just in our homes, but also when we walk around. You know, I think there's two use cases that really stand out to me that are perhaps a little bit more tangible. The first is enterprise. We're already seeing Microsoft do that. Um, you know, right now we're just virtually sitting here on like a Zoom call doing this. And so if we can actually do something that's a bit more immersive with, you know, video conferencing, it makes all the sense in the world. Most technology innovations start with the enterprise, right? The, you know, if we think about mobile, the BlackBerry revolution was an enterprise device. And so I, I totally understand how enterprise connectivity meeting makes all the sense from a metaverse perspective. And on the second yeah. one is, is exactly what we've already seen with the likes of Roblox and, you know, and Epic and others where, you know, Gen Z spends more time online immersed than they do in school. They have more friends in their virtual environment than they do in physical. And so if we're going through this path of saying, let's go create and sell virtual goods and virtual utility, that makes all the sense in the world. If that's where their friends are and that's where they want to buy goods uh, to communicate their status or whatever else they need to communicate to their friends. Right. So I guess, Mark, the question is, will there be some kind of line that delineates the end of sort of high performance gaming and the beginning of the metaverse? Or is it going to be so blurry we won't know until we're well into it? <clears throat> I think it's more the latter. And I think, you know, the mobile revolution effectively kind of acknowledges the same thing. You know, we shifted a lot of our stuff from desktop to mobile and certainly the app based ecosystem is how most of us effectively engage with the Internet today. Uh, but a lot of that is still very much backwards compatible with desktop. And so a lot of the apps you find, you can still go access it through kind of that old school, you know, website through your browser. I think the same thing's going to happen both with gaming and other utility like applications you know, in that next computing platform where it is going to be backwards compatible. You're going to see the existing players that are very much in kind of call it Web 2.0 migrate and develop, uh, you know, their own kind of solutions and applications in that next world. Uh, but it's going to be one of those things where we're not going to see this aha moment where all of a sudden it takes off and we're not looking back. It's all going to be kind of backwards compatible. And just like many of us still have desktops, um, you know, we'll be part of the metaverse, but we'll also be backwards and still using our smartphones, you know, and even our desktop. So it's going to be much more gradual. Yeah, and, and goes to the argument that it's already happening in front of our eyes. Uh, Mark Schmulek, thank you so much for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks a lot. If you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. some sad news to mention. A day after Apple hit that $3 trillion market cap, BlackBerry phones are dead. Service on all of the classic devices will officially shut down today, so no calls, no texts, data, emails. You can find a spot in that drawer next to your pager. Goodbye, physical keyboard. Goodbye, brick breaker. Goodbye, fat-fingered typos. BlackBerry phones were 22 years old, John. Uh, and D, I know that you are Canadian, so I'm sorry for your loss, but I just want to encourage you by saying uh, in every flicker, in every slack that's birthed in the mind of fellow Canadian Stu Butterfield, for every Shopify <laughs> merchant out there, also a Canadian uh, company, um, BlackBerry will live on in our hearts. It was the largest 
Canadian company at one point, the gem of Canadian tech. But as you said, John, we have uh, Shopify now, which has taken that crown and been able to maintain that business. But Carl, I, I, I still miss that keyboard. I tell you, I thought that that might have come, come back in some form, but no. <laughs> uh, BBRY will live in our hearts forever. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.